All right. We have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. Evan Grant will be joining us to talk about his Hall of Fame ballot, as well as some Texas Rangers. James Jonas and I are really excited to get this episode going. So let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Side Retired, the MLB podcast. It is Dylan joined alongside James and Jonas, as always. And today we are joined by Evan Grant, a Hall of Fame voter, as well as covers the Texas Rangers on a daily basis. Extremely excited to talk about both of those topics on today's episode. So before we toss it over to our guest, Jonas, James, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. Just, yeah, great to be here. Great to talk some Hall of Fame. Awesome. And of course, we are on technically when this is released, the last day of 2022. So Happy New Year to everyone. 2023, an exciting year, hopefully for the Texas Rangers as well. I know Evan is looking forward to that. So Evan, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, guys. I am uh, uh, just waiting to see what the next pitcher will be that the Rangers add, because it seems like not a week goes by that they don't add one this offseason. Um, and they've had a lot of work to do. And uh, I give Christian a lot of credit. He's done a lot of heavy lifting here in the uh, in the first two months of the off season. Still got another six weeks to go. There's still some needs to address, but it has been a uh, it's been fast and furious. And so it, it it's been exciting to to watch. And um, they keep me on my toes. I think that's like seven starting pitchers now, if I count that correctly, that could be in the rotation. I know Dane Dunning's coming off of an injury, so he probably gets put to the side for now. But there are six at least for sure, established veteran guys that might make up that rotation this year. Yeah, and, you know, Dunning is coming off of a a hip surgery on his labrum, so all of the additions that the Rangers made allow them to be a little bit more um, uh, cautious with him and not rush him back. Uh, They've also got Glenn Otto, who who had – who, who filled in decently, you know, he's probably profiles as a six starter in the big league. Um, Paul Reagan's pitched some, the former first rounder pitched some in, in August and September. Uh, and look, they've got Cole Wynn, who was their first rounder in 2018, who they thought was about to take a step forward last year. Owen White, who was their second rounder in 2018, who did take a big step forward over the last two years. They've got a pool of about 10, starting pitchers to to pick from and certainly with guys like DeGrom and Heaney to some extent Gray and, and most recently Uvalde they've got some guys with real high upside but also some injury risk and in order to get through a big league season now you know you've got to have a pool of 10 capable starting pitchers and I, I think for the first time in a long long time the Rangers can look at things and say we have a legitimate pool to pick from. Yeah. So do you think that would sort of would those 10 include names like Kamar Rocker or Jack Leiter? Or are they sort of on the outside looking in in terms of age, maybe take a little longer to develop type thing? Well, I you know, Jack's first year, Jack's first. The short answer is yes. Um, I think there had been some hopes, probably more on the fan side than anything else that Leiter would zip right through the minor league system. But you go back and, and you look at. Really, he had one year in college, um, 
had one season destroyed by the pandemic, and then he went straight to double A. Uh, and the Texas League is, you know, it's not a great pitcher's league. And so I think there were there were some things that he ran into that he's he was going to have to deal with. Um, and probably a good learning experience for Jack. He's got really good baseball acumen. Um, he's got a really good resource at home and his dad, um, who at one point in time I covered. So this will be the first father and son pitching combination I think I ever covered. Um, but he's he's got all the talent in the world. And I think that now it also, it, it takes a little bit of the, the pressure off of when's Jack going to be here? When's Jack going to be here? He can, he can develop a little bit at his own rate. Kumar, obviously, you know, made his professional debut in my mind. I, I don't count the semi, the, independent league stuff that he did to kind of get ready for the draft, but made his professional debut in the fall league. And listen, I think he's going to need a full year to kind of get back up to speed. But what the Rangers have done now is they've, they've put together some guys and they have a rotation for 2023. I think guys like you, you look at guys like Owen White and I didn't mention Zach Kent. Those are guys and, and maybe when who could, who could be folded into the mix before the end of 23 go into 24 and I think you're starting to look at lighter and rocker and that group and not too far behind them, probably Brock Porter, the guy they got in the fourth round last year, who was a first round talent, those guys being ready. So um, they are lined up well pitching wise, but we all know that as Chris Young has said multiple times this offseason, you can never have enough starting pitching. Um, this organization has demonstrated that over and over again. And so the next question is is health and, and continued development for these guys. And I think Chris Young, as a former starting pitcher himself, definitely has that perspective of you can never have enough starting pitching and the durability. Although I think Chris was a pretty durable starting pitcher pitching late into his career with the Royals constantly in their starting rotation, I believe. Um, he, you know, Chris did a little bit of everything in his big league career. Um, for a guy who was 6'10", didn't throw hard, had to learn how to get guys out with, with lesser stuff. But he was also a guy, you know, coming from Princeton and and really a cutting edge thinker, understood that because of his length, because of his delivery, he could make his delivery work to his advantage. Um, ha, you know, had his face destroyed by a line drive and came back from that, uh, bounced around a little bit. He's an intense, intense competitor. He knows what it takes um, to build. He's He was on a world championship team with Kansas City knows what it takes to build a, a a contender. And I think he's gone about, you know, the most recent signing is Yavaldi. And it comes out at a point in time when the Rangers already had five starting pitchers for their rotation. They had gone after Michael Conforto. Conforto chose San Francisco over the Rangers. Uh, and the Rangers looked at the situation and said, listen, the best way we can still improve our team right now is – this pitcher wants to come here. We can get a deal done with him. We'll move down to the next class of outfielders, which is kind of that David Peralta, A.J. Pollock, that kind of group. Maybe the trade market opens up. But he was always on the lookout for a way to improve the team. And this gives them depth. It potentially gives them the possibility of maybe moving a guy like Odorizzi into a long role where he could pitch kind of some piggyback innings with some of those starters that have his injury histories early in the season and be available to move into the rotation when an injury calls for it. Yeah, obviously, you know, you're happy bringing in a talent like DeGrom on a five-year contract. But do you also think his veteran leadership 
and locker room presence will really help these younger guys uh, that you've mentioned coming up through the Oh, I think James, we lost your audio for a second. But I think that question was sort of what's the addition of Jacob deGrom going to help out with sort of calming these young guys that will eventually come up? Well, I, I I honestly think that everything I've heard about Jacob is that he is more a lead-by-example guy than he is a real boisterous guy. I also think, you know, when you, when you change the scenes sometimes mm-hmm. – different parts of a personality appear. And as you guys know, New York is a different place. And some guys really respond to that. And some guys don't. I I don't know if that was in any way he and in in Jacob's decision to to, to leave the Mets. Um, But I think that the the Texas situation um, is going to be is going to be different for him. Um, But I think the addition of Yavaldi gives the Rangers also a guy who, who is also pitched in postseason, who is a workout monster, who is the kind of guy who will say, "Hey, let's go do it. Let's go do it this way." They've got a number of veterans now, and all those guys bring something to the mix. And you don't have to have one guy who says, "This is my rotation." Um, if Degrom's Forte is going out and pitching like an ace every fifth day. Great. Uh, Martin Perez grew in my mind, having covered him since he was, you know, a 20 year old Martin Perez grew leaps and bounds in the last year. Uh, I think John Gray, I I think John Gray has good presence. Some of that, you know, first year in Texas, some of the things that they went through with all the free agents that they signed over the winter time, guys really didn't get a chance to know their teammates. They came out of the, uh, out of the gates and were pretty much dead in the water for the first month and spent so much time trying to, to paddle back up. And Gray had some injuries that I don't think John really got to establish the presence he wanted to in, in, in the rotation. But I think when you start looking at all these personalities that they've got, to go along with the stuff and, and the stuff can't be overlooked. They've got a high strikeout, low, low walk rotation right now if these guys are healthy. Um not to mention the fact that you know this club added Greg uh, Mike Maddox as pitching coach, who's really important when it comes to establishing an identity and a conviction for pitchers. And Bruce Bochi is is as good a manager as there is at handling pitchers. So they have improve the staff, improve the the the, con- the shape of the staff, improve the mentality of the staff in, in, in multiple ways. And it needed to be done. Uh, this was this was a substandard pitching staff for really the last five years and, and they've taken significant steps forward to address that. I think adding on to that, the status like Fangraph said it's the number two, number three projected rotation in the sport, which is definitely a massive improvement and i know jacob Degrom when he first came over he talked about this whole the vision in texas and seeing them add guys like heaney and avaldi after they signed Degrom, and especially the addition as you just mentioned of maddox and bruce bochi as these veteran leaders that's definitely something to look forward to i think i know mets fans initially when jake said the whole oh i'm going to texas because of the vision they were like steve cohen spending a lot of money there's a pretty good vision here too but seems like the vision in texas is actually a pretty good and clear one Listen, you know, I, I think that um, I'll give you one visual, right? So the day that DeGrom's press conference was held, the Rangers did the whole kind of dog and pony show out on the concourse. But 
they had it at Globe Life Field. Uh, I looked over to my right, and there were a dozen players there, mm-hmm. um, from Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager uh, to Jonathan Hernandez to a, n- a number of younger guys. My point is that these guys want to win, and they're around this club. And I, I don't know how many guys show up at City Field because I think the Mets are, you know, a little bit more scattered in the offseason. But guys tend to live in this area and spend their offseasons here. And they were at the ballpark every day working out. And so there is a desire here to get better. Uh, and I think that I, I think that there are some things that will now start to fall into place with a normal offseason um, with this is the most accomplished manager the Rangers have ever had. Listen, until – They've never had a manager who won a postseason series um, as a as a hire prior to Bruce. So he comes in with with an awful lot of credentials and an awful lot of um, respect. And obviously, Mike is really good at preparing pitchers for, um, you know, I don't think of Mike as as so much a technician or a biomechanics guy. They will have guys who will work on that stuff and who will do that in between starts, but Mike um, is as good as there is when it comes to detailing a pitching game plan for a guy and for, you know, just instilling conviction. So I think there's, there's the ability to take a really big step forward, Dylan, what you were referring to uh, the Yankees, I think were projected with like 15.7 war from their rotation. And the, the Rangers were at 14.7. Um and that doesn't include Odorizzi as your number six guy. So um, if you're getting an above mm-hmm. replacement level pitcher, you're in pretty good shape in, in that situation. So uh, this team has improved a lot. I, I, but we also can't overlook the fact that the reigning World Series champions are in the, the American League West. Seattle's got a really good team. Um, they've developed, They've done a great job of developing their own pitching uh, and they have one of the most exciting players in the big leagues in Julio Rodriguez and somebody who I think is really underrated in Ty France as a hitter. So the Rangers have improved a lot. They had a long way to go. And I still think they – I really think they need another bat for this lineup. It doesn't have to be uh, – it doesn't have to be Conforto. Um, I know that they had interest in him. But it needs to be somebody who can add a little bit more length to the to the lineup and make it a little bit of a of a tougher lineup to pitch to all the way through. Speaking of the additions of potentially two future Hall of Famers in Bochi and DeGrom, um, going to the Hall of Fame a little, um, what do you do with first that the Hall of Fame ballot gets mailed to you? How do you sort of approach looking at that? How do you approach who you're going to vote for, that kind of thing? Uh, the first thing I do is I open the envelope and I slide it over to the corner of my desk and let it sit there for about 10 days because um, it's uh, in, in today's world and the social media world, it often feels like a, a, a no-win situation to um, offer up your ballot and try and explain it. I, I, I think that everybody's got opinions, and I love the passion that people have about the Hall of Fame. I think it makes – well, I can only say that it, to me it makes me think, I think, even a little bit harder. Like, do I really feel this way about this guy? Am I able to defend this argument one way or another? Um and then I, you know, at, at later in December, usually right after Christmas, I, and that's what I did this year is I sat down the next day 
and just started going through the ballot and, and kind of took a day to, to put my ballot together. And I, I had an idea of guys that were going to be holdovers for me that, that I voted for previously. I think the biggest question for me was came down to, I've kind of waffled back and forth on a brave. Um, I, I don't have him on my ballot this year. Uh, I'll explain that in a, in, in a minute. And then the, the other thing is, the farther and farther we get out from the last 10 years, the more I do start to value pitchers who threw 200 innings year in and year out. Um, I know that Mark Burley's numbers may not be as sexy to some people as, as other guys, but I, I, I feel like this was as reliable and durable a pitcher as there was for the first 15 years of this century. Uh, and that means a lot to me. It still it, it still does. And 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 you know that I, I think that's the one thing that that people do struggle with when they look at voters in their Hall of Fame ballots is they want everybody to explain their votes with absolute consistency. And I don't know that you can apply consistency across the board on every guy. There are different things that stand out for different guys and different reasons why you would say, okay, I I believe in this guy. And at the end of it, you still have to believe in the guy as a Hall of Fame player to, to cast your vote for him. And that's that that ultimately is is what kind of decides it for me. You know, there I spent time this year on Abreu, on Jeff Kent, and um uh, uh Omar Vizquel and Francisco Rodriguez and ended up not voting for any of them. Uh, you know, based on the day, you could probably make a com- telling argument to me on, on just about any of them. But when I sat down and, and, and looked at it, it felt to me like there was a level of separation between the guys I voted for and that next class. And then I think it's also interesting that this year's ballot in particular, there's no like Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera or next year you're going to have Ichiro where it's like, for sure, absolutely, yes, this guy is a Hall of Famer. And you sort of get that. It's not a middle class of Hall of Famer, but it is sort of like a, I know you voted for Scott Rowland, you voted for Todd Helton and Andrew Jones, where it's like, there is at least a debate about are they a Hall of Famer? Are they not a Hall of Famer? And it's not really a slam dunk. I know there's still that mad goose hunt for the who's the one guy that didn't vote for Derek Jeter. It's sort of there wasn't that one guy where it's like, how could you not vote for him on this year's ballot? So definitely an interesting approach. I know you did just mention two guys in Mark Burley and Bobby Abreu, one you did vote for. One you didn't vote for. I know, Jonas, you're a huge Mark Burley supporter, so you're definitely excited to hear that. But how did you end up choosing Burley? And then I guess if you want any of those five guys that you just mentioned that you didn't vote for, is there any in particular that you think you could be convinced for in the future? Well, I I, I mean, I think the top for me, like, look, Abreu and, and Carlos Beltran were really, really are similar players. Um, the difference for me when I, when I looked at things was, and I've, I've got my little chart that I – put together here but you know Biltron was a regular all-star he was a nine-time all-star Abreu twice um Beltron won multiple gold gloves Abreu once these are not huge things but I I, I do think it kind of speaks to this that at the time that they played Beltron was viewed as a more, I don't want to say dominant, but but he was viewed as a as a better player than Abreu. Abreu's got really nice numbers, and he's got he, he compiled 
a lot of good numbers. He also never finished in the top 10 in the league in MVP voting. And so for me, it was like, yeah, Bobby Abreu is a good player, but he was never, for lack of a better term, dominant or mm-hmm. or preeminent. Um, and, and so those are the things that stood out for me. I, the guys that I voted for tended to have multiples in at least two of those three categories, all-star game appearances, gold gloves, or MVP finishes. And uh, that was the biggest, that was the biggest difference for me. And and I, if you look, if you go back and look at a set of statistics, Abreu's statistics match up well with, with Beltran's. I just felt like at the end of the day that there was, there was a different view of who Carlos Beltran was as a player than there was uh, of of Bobby Bray. Did uh did the 2017 uh, cheating scandal have any effect on how you looked at Carlos Beltran, or or did you just kind of say that's null and void? Not really. It didn't really have an impact. I mean, uh, I think the the line for me on on this kind of stuff has always been, um league mandated punishment it's why you know the the guys that i don't vote for who are connected to peds are the guys who had suspensions and significant suspensions right you know manny and and alex are both on this ballot and both those guys had 100 game or more suspensions for steroid use uh those are serious infractions for me um i take what I, i take beltran's involvement in that in, in the cheating scandal, um, seriously, I don't think it was a good look. I think he paid a good a, a price by losing a managerial job, uh, but I don't think it's a it, it disqualifies him from from Hall of Fame vote, balloting or eligibility. Yeah. So, in terms of, I'm assuming that's why Pettit is on your ballot in terms of because he he admitted using steroids, but he wasn't suspended, and it was before they really enforced that. So. Yeah. I've voted for guys who have been connected to steroids. Um, look, Sheffield, I, I feel very strongly that Gary Sheffield belongs in the Hall of Fame. He was mentioned in the Mitchell Report. He's been connected to it. Again, I will give a whole lot of leeway to these guys because this is not um, – I will give these guys a whole lot of leeway. But once penalties were put into place and once guys became not just violators but repeat violators and – took on these long suspensions uh, really that, that that forced them to lose a year or more of playing time. For me, that is where I'm, if I'm willing to take a moralistic stand, that's where it, it comes. And then, so then just out of curiosity, I assume you then did vote for Bonds and Clement since they technically weren't suspended. Correct. I, I, I think when they first appeared on the ballot, I think I did not vote for them the first year. Okay. And I think it was, it wasn't a question of of me saying I'm punishing these guys. It was more. I've voted for the Hall of Fame since 2004, I think, mm-hmm. and I would like to think that over 18 years of voting, that my method of putting together my ballot and my method of thinking about these things has evolved. Just like mm-hmm. if you vote Democrat as an 18 year old, I don't expect you to necessarily have to vote Democratic. For the rest of your life and mm-hmm. so I, I think things change and i think you start to view guys in different lights and i also like i also put some weight into what the era's committees 
do with players who were on the ballot and who um, then became eligible through that manner. Um, Fred McGriff was a good example. Dale Murphy was a guy that they still felt like came up a little bit short. And so I try and take some of that into account too. Like what do the players who are Hall of Famers, what do they view as a Hall of Fame? Um, I try to take in what I get from fans on Twitter and in real life, like their thoughts. I also have to, you know, with a grain of salt, take in that like a guy will tell me, how can you not vote for this guy? And I'll immediately go to his Twitter profile and he's asking my, why I didn't vote for a player who spent a big part of his career in with the Red Sox. And surprisingly enough, the guy is from New England. So there's, there's some parochial um, favoritism that goes along with that. And listen, I grew up a Braves fan at a point in time when the Braves were not very good. Um, and it hurt me every year that Phil Necro did not get voted into the Hall of Fame until on his sixth or seventh try, he finally he finally made it. So I understand that. And having been at the Hall of Fame ceremonies a couple times, seeing when Tim Raines was inducted and seeing the number of Montreal jerseys, these guys meant enormous amounts to their franchises. And I don't, while at some point in time you have to weigh like, okay, was it just a matter of what they meant to this franchise? I also do feel like there should be, you know, representation for these teams and these fan bases. It shouldn't just be Yankees, Red Sox, and Dodgers who make the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I know one of those other guys is probably Todd Helton, who means a ton to that Rockies franchise. He's one of those probably Mount Rushmore guys on that franchise. I know you have a busy schedule and there's a couple other guys we haven't gotten to yet on your ballot, like Todd Helton, Scott uh, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, and Andrew Jones. If there's any of those four guys in particular that you want to give a little quick shout out to or sort of say why those guys are for sure Listen, Hall of I, I, Hilton's numbers I if, if people are penalizing Hilton for playing at Coors Field I, I just think that's unfair Hilton's numbers stack up with with anybody in the league um as far as I'm concerned he belongs just like Larry Walker belonged he belonged um as far as Andrew Jones and Scott Rowland I think a big part of their candidacy for me is the defensive element of of the game, right? We're talking about one guy who won 10 gold gloves and would have rolling win seven. Um, that's that that's elite. Uh, you know, the comp on Andrew Jones, well, not comp, but on the ballot is, is Torrey Hunter, and Torrey mm-hmm. won nine gold gloves. But I think, you know, when you look at offensively and when, for me, when you looked at same thing, difference in, in MVP voting and all-star games, there was, there was a little bit of a difference um, between Andrew and, and, and Tory. Um, and then the last one that you mentioned was. Was also. Billy Wagner. Okay. So yeah, I, uh, I just think if you take Billy Wagner and compare him with the other closers either you're saying look no closers ever belong in the hall of fame again or you have to say that the there is a class of closer that belongs and i just feel like when i compared when i compared wagner to francisco cordero who was on this ballot and to joe nathan who 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 i covered for a while who had you know the best save percentage in the history of baseball um ahead of Mariano 
Wagner just stood out a little bit. His, you know, his ERA plus was 187 compared to Mariano at 205, was 40 points higher than K Rods. His strikeout, um, his strikeouts per nine was 12. His whip was below one. This was a dominant, dominant closer. And I feel like there was a clear line of of demarcation between where K-Rod was and where these other guys are who have fallen off the ballot quickly and Billy Wagner. So speaking of guys you covered, this may be a little speculative for next year, but someone like Adrian Beltre, how do you think you would rank them on a Hall of Fame ballot? Is that someone you'd vote for? Is it too early to say? Uh, well, he'll be on the Hall of Fame ballot, and I would expect that Adrian is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Will he get 100% of the vote? No, but this is a guy who had five gold gloves, who um, uh, 3,000 hits, um, and we can talk about counting numbers and all that, but there's still some thresholds. You reach you reach 3,000 hits, you have been a good hitter. Um, the number of doubles he had, the joy he played the game with, um, the leadership that I saw personally, I, I think he's clearly a Hall of Famer in my mind. Um I will be interested to see where the percentage falls. I, I I think that he'll likely get between 85 and 90% of the ballot. I don't think he'll be a guy who crosses over that 90% threshold, but I do think he'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer and he deserves it. And obviously next year's ballot is filled with a bunch of really interesting candidates. I think Itro and Adrian Belcher are those for sure. Hall of Famers, and then there's a bunch of interesting Chase Utley's on the ballot, Ryan Howard's on the ballot, David Wright, Ian Kinsler. A lot of those guys, Jonas, we're going to start to feel old. This is like this year's ballot was the first one we were like, shoot, we remember seeing a lot of these guys playing. And next year, obviously, with the David Wright poster behind me, David Wright being on the Hall of Fame ballot makes me feel really old seeing that he is the guy that is going to be there finally. Um, and we'll see what happens with all those fun guys. But definitely appreciate unless there's anything else you guys, James, Jonas, Evan, that you want to throw in here at the end. All good. All right. Well, hopefully you enjoy hearing Simple Man on opening day blasting in Texas with Jacob deGrom. I know I enjoyed that over the last eight years, but he's yours and he's your treat for the next five years. So hopefully a great 2023 season to the Texas Rangers. And thanks so much for joining us today, Evan. My pleasure, guys. Best of luck to you. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great news. Side Retired is now partnered with SeatGeek. For all ticketing needs, go to SeatGeek.com and use promo code SIDERETIREDPOD in all capitals for $20 off your first order. We've got you covered from all things ranging from sporting events to concerts, including the New York Rangers and Texas Rangers. Yes, this means we're officially taking you out to the ballgame. And now for the rest of today's edition of Side Retired Podcast. All right, Jonas, that was a great episode just now that we finished up with Evan Grant talking Texas Rangers and Hall of Fame. What were your thoughts on the episode? Yeah, it was great. Learned a lot about the Rangers, their pitching in general, and just really interesting to hear how Evan decides his Hall of Fame ballot, just the methodology and how it's evolved over time. All right. And of course, definitely make sure that you're listening to us here on Apple Podcasts. A great announcement coming up next week regarding the future of the podcast and a potentially new place that you can listen to us. So a happy, healthy, and safe new year. We will be back, of course, next week with our regular three episodes a week. I know this week got a little combobulated, but until the next time, for Dylan, James, Jonas, and Jack, the side is retired. 